from the timmerman to the skilled. From the carpenter to the painter and the service engineer, we were all involved in the product and we all wanted to make it better. So if you turned up with a design for a tug that looked completely different on the inside, with different technology, everyone would be at a loss. What are we supposed to do now? We can't have that. You're listening to On Course, a podcast from Dame, about how a visionary idea turned a small company into one of the biggest shipbuilders in the world. My name is Volker Tempelman, and I've been fascinated by Dutch entrepreneurs at home and abroad for years. In this podcast, you'll hear a remarkable story about headwinds and perseverance, about daring and doing. It's 1967 and 23-year-old Kommer Damen is now working for Scheepswerf Firma Gebroeders Damen, having graduated from the Higher Technical School, or HTS, and serving in the Navy. The company consists of three small wharves and a carpentry workshop. His cousin is responsible for production. Kommer and his father are jointly responsible for sales and make up the management. And the shipyard is doing well. As you heard in the previous episode, the company was able to respond quickly to changing circumstances and had grown steadily as a result. But when Kommer started to work there, he soon came to believe there was more potential. He felt the company could grow a lot faster and be even more successful than it was. And Kommer knew how. He set out his vision in a comprehensive plan. He wanted to start supplying boats with much shorter delivery times. If you have holes in stock and main engines and propellers, you can put a ship together in about two weeks, which is a pretty short delivery time. I'm Kommer Damen. Building boats as stock. In the late 60s, nobody in the Netherlands was doing that, especially not the small yards. My name is Joke Korteweg, and I'm a maritime historian specializing in Dutch shipbuilding, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries. You're investing in something that is very uncertain because you don't know whether you'll be able to sell that stock. Will you find customers for the boats you've built? For a regular family-owned business, keeping boats in stock is not a straightforward matter. The family needs to be prepared to put in the money, and you have to have the money. So the idea was met with a degree of suspicion in the family. They wondered why they shouldn't just carry on working the way they always had. The whole plan was shot down by my cousin, my uncle and my father. We talked about it for a year and eventually my uncle and father decided to split up the company because they both realized that me and my cousin couldn't work together. The family felt Kommer's idea was too risky. But because of the rising tensions, continuing together wasn't an option either. 
In early 1969, scheepswerffirma Gebroeders Damen was split into two separate companies. Kommer's uncle and cousin got the two new wharves, and Kommer and his father got the oldest wharf plus the carpentry workshop. Dus de boten in aanbouw. The boats that were under construction were finished in my father's wharf, so we kept the old address. And my father said, you can't expose all our employees to your risky plans. You have to give them the option of going with your cousin. The workforce pretty much followed my cousin en masse, with the exception of six people. I really exploited the fact that I still had the old address and the old phone number. Because if a customer called us, they would call my number. Perhaps my cousin hadn't really thought about that. But it meant I was able to direct a lot of work my way, because most of our customers didn't know the company had been split up. So that was maybe a bit underhanded of me. The new firm was called Scheepswerf Damen, or Damen Shipyards. And Kommer and his cousin became competitors in terms of customers, but also in terms of employees. Of a total of 60 employees, only six dared to join Kommer on his new adventure. And Kommer had another challenge. The wharf he and his father now owned could only be used for finishing boats. To build the hulls, he needed the help of other yards. Would his plan succeed? With hardly any staff and an unsuitable wharf, Kommer needed people around him who he could trust and count on. For him, that meant the friends he had made during his time in the Navy. And he started working together with Ari Bogaert, a shipbroker whose work involved matching supply with demand, as well as making agreements with suppliers. As such, he performed a crucial role in realizing Kommer's vision. And we made a deal with Caterpillar. If we exclusively used Caterpillar engines in our boats, I wouldn't have to pay until a year after I'd delivered the first one, which meant that I had a whole year's credit. Obviously, that was great in itself, but also because it ultimately proved very successful, and we grew very quickly. Kommer followed up with his next idea, standardization. Designing a hull that lends itself to many different purposes using the same components. Damen didn't build ships to order because that would cost too much time and money. If you do a lot of the same thing, it just works out cheaper than changing things each time. And you also make fewer mistakes. Technically, you develop a better product. And if you standardize components, you can use them in multiple products. That's a much more efficient way of building ships. If you're no longer having to build a ship according to the wishes of the customer, you have a very big advantage. Namely, that you can develop a kind of basic design that will always do the job. You can then customize it based on any additional requirements. In order to achieve that, Comer spent a lot of time listening to customers. He went and talked to the dredging companies and to the people who worked with the boats. And ultimately, he came up with a single type of boat that most customers said they could work with. That was a condition for being able to deliver quickly. I spent three days, day and night, on a dredging site to work out what would be the optimal boat for them. We then started making the holes thicker than the work boats my father built. 
In order to protect them against damage caused by low pontoons in the water or floating pipelines, we also added a long rubber prow. All very technical, but it ended up being a great design. Ari Bogart came up with the idea of calling it the Pushycat because of that push bow. The Pushycat was a multifunctional boat for the dredging industry. It was around 42 feet or 14 and a half meters long. And at 250 horsepower, it was very powerful. The name alludes to its most important characteristics. Pushy, because it could push, and cat, because it was propelled by a caterpillar engine. It was a real no-nonsense boat that was capable of effectively maneuvering alongside huge dredgers. It was the Pushy Cat. That was the Pushy Cat. And later there was a version which also had sleeping quarters on board. A condition was that just about anyone should be able to operate it. So it had to be simple. So even if the entire crew of the dredger was occupied and only the cook was available, he needed to be able to operate it to drop off the crew or collect some item they needed. Comer further developed that idea, which was quite unique for a small shipyard. There were all kinds of versions. That turned out to be helpful in terms of obtaining financing from the banks, because the boat became a well-known model, almost like a 1975 Volvo, say. It had a certain value, which the banks were aware of, and that made it easier to get financing from them. And that meant that banks also managed financing. The Pushy Cat was a great success. They were sold even before they were built. Commerce ideas about building ships as stock and standardization turned out to be right on the money. Shipbroker Ari Boogaard sold the boats all over the world. And there was a lot of demand in the Netherlands too. For example, from the Royal Netherlands Ocean Rescue Institute. They even ordered multiple boats at once. I think they liked my approach and I built a whole series of them. It was an unbelievable success. They sold like hotcakes. It was amazing. And the profits were also impressive. Ari Bogart sold the first boat for 82,500 guilders. We charged 87,500 guilders for the second boat, 92,500 for the third, 97,500 for the fourth, and 107,500 guilders for the fifth boat. After that, we kept the price the same for a long time, whereas our costs fell because it was taking us fewer hours to build a boat thanks to standardization. We were also able to buy components in bigger quantities for mass production, which meant we were making huge profits. The Pushycat provided a solid foundation for Daman's success. Between 1969 and 1973, dozens were sold to the dredging industry alone. Over the years, 500 Pushycats were built and sold. Alongside the Pushycat, Kommer had another idea. For that, he turned to his old friend Piet Hein Noordenbos, who he knew from school and the Navy. At that time, Piet Hein was working for a different shipbuilder. We built polyester ships. Kommer came to see me and said, Piet Hein, I have an idea. I want to develop a fast boat 
to transport crew members from the port to a drilling rig or wherever. At the moment, they have to do that by helicopter, but it can be done much more cheaply. And I said, you're right. A fast boat shouldn't be made of steel. It's a good thing you've come to us, because we use polyester. I told Cormer I was happy to make the design. I suggested leaving the company where I was currently working and develop the design as a freelancer. But Cormer said no. He only wanted to work with in-house people for a project involving so much money. On the second day I was there, I had a meeting with Kommer and his father, who I had not met before. We went through the calculations for my designs, and at one point his father looked at me and said, aren't we rushing into this? I replied, no, Mr. Daman, we're not rushing into it. We know what we're doing. Don't worry. Piet Hein designed a faster version of the Pussycat, made of polyester, the Polycat. This new design extended the range of the boat's applications. The Polycat was used by Harbor Police, for example. We started building the Polycat on the 1st of March 1971. It was a huge challenge because it was too expensive. But the revenues coming in were enough to finance the construction of the Polycat. We developed and tested the boat in Wageningen. The model had a spacious cabin for 12 people in the bow, and the engines were in the stern, with hatches to make them easily accessible. It had two propellers and two 350 horsepower engines. In total, it weighed 18 tons with all the fixtures and fittings. In November, we started trials, which was of course a really big moment because none of us had ever operated a boat at 60 kilometers per hour before. Yes, it was a real experience going that fast. I seem to remember the police fined us twice for going too fast or causing excessive waves. Diamond Shipyards was onto a winner again. The Polycat was also a great success. Hong Kong, Cameroon, Qatar, France. Orders for this innovative new boat came in from all over. And because Diamond again applied the concepts of standardization and mass production, it was able to turn them out quickly. And the man who knows all about that is Koen Boudestein. Koen Boudestein, retired Daman Tugs director. We had standardized lots of components which were reused in other boats. So if you build 10 30-meter tugs per year and another 10 24-meter tugs for a new series, you start by sourcing components for 20 standard tugs, which means you need the windows, air vents, hinges, valves, all those components for 20 boats and that means you're increasing the volumes you buy. The designs were based on the KISS principle. 
Simple, stupid. Simplicity was what it was all about. If something was unnecessary, it shouldn't be there. Less is more, we always said. Over the years, the boats got better and better. Boat number 10 and boat number 20 were better than boat number 1 in their details, because we constantly had feedback from customers and from the crews of ships. We were able to improve the design step by step. And the Pussycat always remained the model, because it was a small but simple workboat. They were always powered by a General Motors engine, and they always had a Reintjes clutch. That was the standard technology we used, and it was the best for those boats. It was tried and tested. And that was the best for the schepen, it was proved. And more of the same was good for our customers too, because if they had a problem, they could solve it more quickly because the technology was familiar. Not only that, they were less likely to have a problem in the first place because they were starting with technology that was successful. Because if it wasn't, Diamond would improve it so that it was. So the standard technology was the best technology a customer could buy. Under Commerce leadership, Scheepsurf Damen grew steadily. And the international market became more and more important. In order to develop that market further, Commerce decided to set up a sales organization. Ik ben Jaap van den Bogert. My name is Jaap van den Bogert. Jaap joined Damen in 1972. Before that, he worked for a competitor as a traveling sales manager. He saw with his own eyes how standardization worked in practice and how production became even faster and more efficient. We built one of those boats in a week, because the hull was already there, and so were the components. Everything was there. It was a question of knowing that a particular propeller and propeller shaft went into a particular engine, and you'd build them right in. And that's what they did. We once sold a pushycat to a Danish company, and the guy came to see it being built. We showed him the boat, which was supposed to be transported to Denmark on board a ship in two days' time. He saw that half-built boat and he said, you'll never do it. But we said, yes, we will. He couldn't believe it, but we did it. Damon's ambition to grow worldwide meant Jaap was on the road a lot. And he spent a great deal of time building an international customer base. Kommer was also away from home half of the time. You have to see your customers, see your competitors. Are your products performing properly? Take a look on board, operate the boat. Otherwise you can't run a company like this. Everything happened by telex. There were no faxes back then, and important documents were stenciled. If you checked a stencil and discovered a mistake, that was quite a problem. Now that's all much easier. If you wanted to communicate, you couldn't put everything on the telex. So you had to request a telephone call from the operator. That took a long time. Let's just say it wasn't sophisticated. And if you got angry about it, they'd say, excuse me, sir, apparently you're a Westerner. This is how it is here. And sometimes you couldn't get a hotel locally. 
I once slept on the pool table of an airport hotel in Lagos, with a chain around my leg and through the handle of my briefcase. I wouldn't want to do that now. But all those efforts on the part of Comer and the Dame sales team were not in vain. There was a lot to be gained internationally at that time. That had everything to do with the oil crisis of 1973. Good evening. The Middle East war produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil... I'm Jan Lauten van Zanden, Emeritus Professor of Economic History at Utrecht University. The Middle East was entirely dependent on exports of oil to the West, to Europe and the United States. They dominated the entire oil business and had set up an organization to that end, OPEC, in order to increase their control. Then there was a war with Israel. The Arab world issued an oil boycott against the countries that they felt had given Israel too much support, like the Netherlands and the United States. At the same time, they massively increased oil prices. In the Netherlands, oil was rationed. That betekent that for het eerst sinds de oorlog een jonge generatie zal kennis maken met distributie aan schaarste. Veel mensen zijn diep After decades of economic growth and increasing wealth, the world entered a period of recession and uncertain times. Inflation in general was stoked by the oil price rises, which caused a kind of shock effect throughout the economy. That meant reduced economic growth, which in turn meant more unemployment. It was something of a turning point in our economic development post-1945. But in the Middle East, things were going well. And the same went for the companies doing business there. Of course, for the countries in the Middle East that had oil, business was booming. They were getting a lot more money for their oil, and they wanted to export much more of it. As a result, big Dutch dredging companies and others in that sector started building ports in the Middle East, in Kuwait and other countries. The dredging companies suddenly had loads of work in the Middle East, and that was due to the huge demand for oil. That meant lots of orders for the shipyards to build tankers, which in turn meant lots of orders for the dredging companies to build ports. So the dredging companies had a lot of work there, but they also needed work boats themselves. And the new ports needed firefighting boats and pilot boats. They could all be supplied based on that same basic workboat design, really quickly. You couldn't hire a boat for love or money, but Kommer could offer a short delivery time and new boats. That made Damen a very attractive partner. Although they didn't yet have an international network at that point, they piggybacked on the dredging companies. And no doubt the fact that the dredging companies were based nearby was a factor too. You can't overstate the importance of familiarity. They knew each other. 
So on the one hand, it remained very traditional and clustered in that part of the Netherlands, but on the other hand, it was very innovative. They kept a close eye on what was happening in the rest of the world, and they had a vision. I suppose it's easy to say with hindsight. At the time, no doubt, a lot of things that now appear to be really good decisions happen by chance. But the fact remains that you need to be entrepreneurial to seize those opportunities. You could say that's typically Damen, seeing opportunities and then responding to them smartly. For example, if a new port was being opened somewhere, Kommer would approach the port authorities about supplying boats to them. That worked out really well. For the average Dutch company doing business there, it probably meant there was a lot of economic growth, and they would have benefited from that. I always see it as an opportunity. You can call it coincidence or luck. Of course, you do need to be alert to the opportunities when they arise. By now, Damen had expanded its range. It was also supplying tugboats such as the Stantug. And many port authorities in the Middle East wanted them, says Koen Boudestein. Stan tugs were boats with conventional propulsion by means of double propellers, fixed propellers. Thanks to these more efficient tugboats, ship owners could get the container ships into port at higher speeds, which meant they could turn them around more quickly. Around 1975, there were something like 80 diamond boats in the Persian Gulf. Despite all the international successes, the company essentially remained the same. Everyone involved in building a boat still had input. From the carpenter to the painter and the service engineer, we were all involved in the product and we all wanted to make it better. So if you turned up with a design for a tug that looked completely different on the inside, with different technology, everyone would be at a loss. What are we supposed to do now? We can't have that. We all had the same vision and the same goal, yes. I worked in tugs for over 40 years, and those tugs were very important for Damen. Thanks to tugs, we were able to undertake new developments, investments and expansions. Profits rose thanks to mass production, and as the numbers increased, you can be sure we made a lot of money. Those tugs have always been very important. The company was changing fast, but Comer would not let himself be diverted and remained on course. The success and growth brought new challenges. The yard at Hardingsveld Giesendam had become too small for the huge volume of boats that needed to be built there. By now, Damen had 150 employees. So the idea was floated of moving to a bigger site. There would be more space for storage, and they might also be able to start building bigger ships. Not that they moved very far. In fact, they chose a site that was very close by. I think it was purely practical. Because, of course, they had also added other kinds of work over time. If they could bring it all together in one place, they would have a shipyard that did everything. So we invited the city council to come and visit us, and we explained our plans. By then our activities had spilled over onto rented sites at other yards. So I said, we're going to grow really big, and we now have the opportunity to buy this site. 
Fortunately, the council liked the plans. Especially because of the employment they would bring, says Dina, Kommer's sister. And he He got everyone behind the plan to buy it. He got the investors and the council on board. Of course, it turned out to be a brilliant move. It was 1975. In less than a decade, Damen had grown to become a serious international player. For all those years, he had a vision. And my father let him put it into practice. I'm convinced of that. My father really gave him freedom. If he hadn't had that, well, there's no need to speculate. He was simply very good at what he did. Eventually, Jan Damen decided to step back from the company completely. The new Damen was growing so fast that he couldn't keep up with the pace of the developments. He sold the entire yard to Kommer, and he remained involved in the background. But there was still one more important task for Jan to perform. Driving the first pile for the new yard. Without my father, it would never have happened. You have to understand that his reputation in a small town like this, that really helped. Having to start from scratch is much harder. Yes, I had a start, and that's thanks in part to my father. Remarkably, Comer was not there when his father drove the first pile. He was on his way to France. To sell boats, of course. Nothing seemed to stand in the way of Damen's continued success. The company appeared to be going from strength to strength. But there was a crisis brewing in the Netherlands. Could Damen survive it? You've been listening to On Course, a podcast from Damen made by audio agency Airborne. Don't want to miss another episode? Subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thank you.